Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to Science at the Theater's Hot Technology Cool Science, brought to you by the Friends of Science at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, also known as Berkeley Lab. My name is Jeff Miller, and I'm head of public affairs. Uh, for those first-timers in the audience who might not know much about us, uh, Berkeley Lab is operated by the U.S. Department of Energy and managed by the University of California. And you can learn more about us if you read this brochure, which I hope all of you got a copy of when you came in uh, this evening. Uh, there are more than 21 breakthroughs, but we just picked that number because we thought it sounded good. Uh, also tonight, I'd like to thank our co-sponsors, which are the Chabot Space and Science Center, the Exploratorium, the Lawrence Hall of Science, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, University of California, Berkeley, Albany High School Science Department, Berkeley High School Science Department, and Oakland High School Science Department. Thank you all very much. Um, our discussion tonight is going to last about an hour. Uh, there will be a Q&A immediately following. We have mic stands here. Please use them because we want to make sure that your questions are here uh, clearly heard. Uh, also, for the latest developments on science and technology at Berkeley Lab, please go to our website at lbl.gov. We're going to be adding more, more new features. I hope you've noticed we've changed it lately. And with that, uh, enough of me. We're going to turn the evening over to our host uh, and moderator, John Fowler of KTVU Channel 2. John? Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, welcome to my world. Uh, I'm a uh, science journalist, and what I've done for the last almost 30 years is I get to talk to uh, very smart people about things about which they're passionate, and that's what we're going to do tonight. And uh, I think that you'll get a kick out of this because um, what I do is I ask people to explain their science, and then I ask them the question, so what? This is the so what? Now, uh, when Jeff asked me to uh, do this uh, for the uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, uh, I jumped at the chance because uh, this is a uh, unique place. It's premier uh, and a premier institution uh, worldwide, and what it does best is uh, take lab bench science and turn it into reality. What these scientists do is uh, they take scientific theory, and they turn it into something that you and I will use. And this is what science really is all about. It's why we fund it. It's why our taxpayer dollars go for it. It's why we help uh, these people uh, with uh, contributions uh, from foundations, and, and it's why uh, the National Science Foundation, it's why uh, uh, large uh, foundations, and including... Um, uh, mega corporations give money here. It's because what happens is science only works to your benefit if these people get to do their work. And so I'm going to be taking notes. What I, uh, I've uh, uh, been graciously given the permission to call each of these uh, people by their first names. And I will uh, interrupt if I don't get it. I hope if you, anyone out there, thinks I'm interrupting too much, holler out and I'll shut up. But, but what I'd really like to do is get to learn a little bit about this science and how it matters to all of us. And so uh, really without any further ado, I hope this works for you all. 
because it's going to be fun for me. Uh, I'd like to uh, introduce Todd DeSantis. And he has something called the phyllo chip. I take it it's not phyllo dough that's been baked. No, it's, phyllo means phylogenetic, which has to do with the tree structure of all these bacteria that are related to each other. So we use those relationships to try to learn more about the bacteria in our world. So what have you got, and what is it? I brought one. It's uh, just a small disposable cartridge, and a typical syringe injects some sort of sample, whether it be blood, soil, water, and it can tell you which types of bacteria you have in that sample and then how much of each of those types as well. Sounds like you could use it in the bay sometime. Well, actually, we do, and I have some uh, pictures of us uh, taking really? samples in the bay, as a matter of fact. Well, Sh- should t- I? Tell us about it, yeah. Sure. So uh, this is the phyllo chip, and uh, we think it's going to help out in health management and environmental management. And basically, the problem is there are so many bacteria in us, on us, around us. As a matter of fact, the human body you see right here has 10, per- or 10 times as many bacterial cells as human cells. In each one of us. So we think. I showered. Even if you did, even if we scrub as hard as we can, there's still some that are attached to us so tightly and they're inside of us as well. And these bacteria, there's different types. You might have heard of some salmonella, for instance, or uh, strep, staph, E. coli. Well, there's actually over 10,000 different types that we know about and many more to still be discovered. And they live together in communities, the same way a city works well if you have firemen, policemen, and scientists. But if you had all scientists, the city would be not in balance, right? So same thing happens with us. They help us digest food, recycle waste in the environment. But if they're out of balance, we have disease causes, caused. And one of the really exciting um, research that came out from our collaborators, they found that this balance is so important where if you look at the um, microbes inside a human gut, they're dominated by this one type called Formicutes in obese individuals. But then after dieting, those bacteria actually decline in another type um, their population increases. And so we are finding that the way you digest food even has to deter- is determined by the types of community bacteria that we have in our gut. The problem is it takes a long time to work up these samples to determine which type of bacteria you have in whatever sample. Well, how can you tell the difference between them? How does this little chip know which is which? Well, it actually has a DNA test, and that's the nice thing about it. In the, in the past, you've had to do many Petri dish. Maybe you remember from high school, spreading bacteria onto a Petri dish, waiting for them to grow, then getting a microscope out, identify each one. Well, if we want to look at a whole population of people or many different water samples, that would take too long. It takes money. It takes time. So Gary Anderson wanted to bypass all that. And instead of doing all these different processes here that all take time, days, and money, there's a quick, chi- a quick test now that um, will profile the thousands of different b- types of bacteria that are known all in one quick test. So how can, what's going to be next? What's, how, how are we going to use that? Well, there's a lot of different uh, ways we can use it. Um, right now, what we're doing is uh, water testing is a big, uh, a big uh, use. Um, this, this woman here, Sung, she's excited about it because she processed a whole bunch of soil samples. She found soil that was used for agriculture versus soil that wasn't ever disturbed and found there's a completely different types of bacteria in both, probably because of the root structures and the different types of plants that grow in that soil. Other, other uses um, is skin sampling. So Dr. Uh, Karaz here... He took samples from humans from the forehead, underarms, um, forearms, um, all different places and found that the types on top of your head where it's more greasy, that's what I'm shining probably right now, is this propionobacterium acnes, which is the same thing that causes acne, right? There's these, there's these squiggly ones behind your ears. 
under your armpits, there's this one's called peptostreptococcus, and uh, they can, um, you know, eat your skin cells and fluids and, and make foul odors. And he also found out that on the same individual, if you sample both sides with the phylochip, both arm, the, the different communities of bacteria um, uh, are present in either one. So the take-home message there is, you know, make sure you scrub both sides in the shower. So it, there might be some health effects there, too, and he'll be, he'll be writing a paper about that. Another great example is um, in the rainforest, there's one in Puerto Rico called Cloud Forest, there's a very productive soil. In other words, whenever something falls in the soil, it decomposes very rapidly here. Now, this is a key for biofuels. If you can decompose plant material quickly, then you can release energy fast and make biofuels. So she wanted to know what kind of, uh, Dr. DeAngelis wanted to know what kind of bacteria are responsible for doing that. So she went up to the uh, cloud forest, took samples, and identified which types of, types of bacteria seem to be most responsible to degrading uh, types of wood. This is something you can use in the field? You can take this with you? You can. Uh, there, there's been a, um, an RV. You can set, set your equipment up in the RV. Normally what happens is you bring a sample back into the laboratory and then you inject it into the, into the uh, chamber here. Uh, inside there's a small glass surface and then uh, where the DNA sticks you have a fluorescence and then you use a, um, a scanner to see what the fluorescence is. And, that, this, and there's a, a million different tests on the, the chip surface. So where the fluorescence occurs tells you which type of bacteria is present. And the brighter the fluorescence is, the more abundant that bacteria is. Huh. Can you find novel bacteria with that? Can you see new things? Uh, well, there is a case where, we, where it helped us find new bacteria, but in most cases what you're doing is surveying all known bacteria. So every few months, we can update our databases, and so we know which DNA goes with which bacteria. And then that, as more bacteria become discovered, we can address the different um, tests of, on the surface to a new type of bacteria. Is, is this something I should take on a date uh, with me to see if the... <laughs> it depends how well you know the person. Yeah, she, she takes a joke well. <laughs> uh, it, it, what other applications do you, do you see this uh, being used for? Where, where else can we use this? So put on the speculator hat for a second. What else do you want to do? Well, what I'm passionate about is... Um, you know, I have some young kids, and I've brought them to the doctor before, and... Um, the best you can do sometimes is get a throat culture, for instance, if they're sick, wait a few days, and maybe find out the result. Or there's some, some rapid tests that you can do to find the one type of strep, streptococcus they're looking for. But it would be great if we could take our, ourselves to the hospital, get a, a quick sample, and with ours, know exactly all the 10,000 types of bacteria, which ones that might be infecting you, and which types of antibiotics are resistant to. So we don't over-treat everything with antibiotics the way we're doing now, so we have more defined medical care. So that's one of the, uh, of the great issues. Another thing would also be in managing waste. Um, and there's a case here, I'll skip ahead to a case where, maybe you've all seen this, a sewage treatment plant. Well, this sewage has lots of energy still in it. And so uh, Kelly here, she's finding ways to take the sewage, put it into these things called microbial fuel cells. And the microbes eat the waste and turn it into electrical current. And by adjusting different widths, depths, different types of materials in the, in the fuel cells, she gets different currents. And then she determines which types of bacteria are, are abundant in productive fuel cells and which ones aren't declining. So from this, she can make hypotheses about the electron transport that happens from the fecal material to the electrodes and then moving through the current. And it's thought that we could actually use this waste productively if we tune the bacteria correctly to run all the motors for all the pumps for the whole waste treatment plant eventually. So there's, there's lots of... Uh, applications besides medical you know, for environmental uh, protection as well. 
Well, one of the things that uh, I know is that there are, I've been downwind of some of those plants. There's a lot of power there, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The, the, the things that, uh, that come up for me is, well, if we can identify these bacteria and identify what they do, can we capture them, harness them, and use them for us to clean up oil spills or other things? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a, a wonderfully designed system here in, the, in this gut of this beetle here. There's, if you look at the... Um, the gut of this beetle, there's actually different segments, just like our human gut. And this beetle can eat wood and turn it into fuel. So, and the way they do it is because each compartment does a different degradation process. So wood material has sugars, but they're wrapped up in these, sub, in these superstructures and, they, and there's substructures of these and so on and so on. But to get down to the sugar inside actually uh, takes microbial decomposition. So the thought that Dr. Brody has is to use the, each community of bacteria separately so they have a process where you have each, um, in this case, uh, wood chips would go into one, and then, and then as you go from process to process, you're down at the end with sugars that can be fermented to alcohols, which then can be used as biofuels. So we're trying to take cues from nature and build systems around those. Well, using this, this, right, well, this, this chip, you can, you can actually see what nature is doing. Exactly. Wow, this is very cool. Um, one of the uh, last questions I'll have for you, was there, a, uh, was there a breakthrough that you needed to do to, get, to make this happen? Well, the big breakthrough has been DNA sequencing. So in the last 10 years, DNA sequencing has become less and less expensive, which means that you could, of all the bacteria that are known in people's freezers, they've been sequencing them, and we can find the, the DNA sequence that makes each of the genomes. Then, once we can look at those DNA sequences and compare them, we can find the unique regions from each bacteria. Once we can find those unique regions, then we can develop tests to differentiate each one. When will I be able to have this at home? Oh, hopefully soon. There's beta test sites right now that are using them at different universities. Um, so we're hoping to simplify the entire process and make it quicker and um, easier to interpret the results. So hopefully soon. Great, Todd. Thank you very much. Um, let's move on next to uh, Natash Balsara. Uh, Natasha has uh, another little gizmo too, don't you? Um, yep. What's what's that? So uh, this is a a battery. Uh, right now it runs light bulbs, but one of these days it may run an automobile. It, it's it looks like a credit card or smaller, even thinner. Correct. It's uh, it's what differentiates this battery from the batteries that you can buy is that it's it's a solid. Uh, it's made of uh, all solid materials. Uh, all the batteries you can buy right now have liquids in them. That's why they're shaped like a can, most of them. And so we are trying to eliminate the liquid and thereby get a more, uh, better battery. Better battery. You, you and I talked a little bit before this started, and some of you out here may know of something called Moore's Law. Uh, Moore's Law, where uh, Gordon Morris thought that uh, he was a well-known inventor thought that uh, things would, uh, with computers, every 18 months or so, double in power and double in speed. That's worked that way with batteries? <laughs> well, uh, like this chart shows, not quite. Uh, the doubling of energy in a battery takes about 50 to 75 years. Um, and they were invented in 1850, and they contained about 40 watt-hours per kilogram. And, and, and up to about 2,000, they only uh, had about 80 or so. Um, and then uh, what happened was that uh, Sony uh, introduced this lithium-ion battery that then 
allowed you to carry more than a pocket transistor in your pocket. And so all of the wireless technology that you see is due to the lithium-ion battery. Were the chemists just asleep for the last 50 years? What's the deal? Um, the, uh, it, it was a combination of things. Uh, I think Sony had the foresight to see the importance of batteries. Most other companies did not. Uh, most of the research that underlies the Sony battery was done in this country. So they just took it all together and packaged it. So what's in there that makes it so special? Uh, so what you have in a battery is, are two electrodes to which you connect things. And then in, in, in the case of a lithium-ion battery, the lithium ions have to go from one electrode to the other when you charge and discharge. And all batteries currently have a liquid that allows for that movement. What is special about this battery is that it has a solid. And, and uh, uh, using a solid, we are trying to then use electrodes that have higher energy that would otherwise not be stable in the presence of the liquid. So when I buy my new Tesla Roadster with my bonus, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> can I use these batteries with it? Is this the kind of thing that uh, we may see in a car one day? It, you could see that. Um, right now, uh, these batteries would run like the batteries that uh, are driving a Tesla. Uh, in fact, it turns out that Tesla uses the same batteries that are there in the computer. The laptop batteries have very similar requirements as a car battery, it turns out. Uh, and uh, uh, what our batteries cannot do is charge as quickly as the uh, Tesla batteries. You know, when you charge up a laptop, you want to charge it in two hours. You use it over eight hours. So our batteries would work right now, but human beings are too impatient to use our batteries. So, so you're telling me if I really want to get rich, go into battery engineering? Um, <laughs> uh, all aspects of batteries. Uh, we can produce about 200 or so watt hours per kilogram using a battery. Uh, compare that with the gasoline, which is about 12,000 watt-hours per kilogram. You're a factor of 100 away. Um, so you have a long way to go. The, most, the highest, density, uh, highest energy density battery known is a lithium-air battery with 5,000 watt-hours per kilogram. So there's lots of room on the top to expand. So it's 5,000 watt-hours and 12,000 for gasoline. Yep. Uh, that's pretty close. That's pretty good. That's, that's, uh, that would be amazingly good. Will we see such a battery? I doubt come it. Come from your laboratory <laughs> by September? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, given the fact that it only increases by a factor of two or so every 50 years, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a tall order. Unlikely. Um, why is it then that this battery technology hasn't kept pace with some of the other electronics technologies? What's, what's the problem? Um, it's actually... Uh, a much more complicated, uh, it, it's more compli in, in, in technology uh, such as electronics, uh, you just have to draw lines finer and, and you use the same system. None of that applies to batteries. You have to create new materials to make batteries carry more energy. You have to make sure that they're stable. Uh, you know, uh, and, and these are very hard things to do in a safe way. Uh, the other thing you don't want your batteries to do is blow up. 
So there are <laughs> simple things you can do to increase the energy density of the battery, but all those things generally will lead to the battery blowing up more quickly. <laughs> and so... Sounds like a bad thing, yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, in the end, the energy density of gasoline has not changed that much. Uh, yes, ga gasoline stayed pretty much the same. Right. Um, do you see a time when something like fuel cells could work? I mean, uh, there's a, you've got a battery on a credit card. Could we make a fuel cell with that sort of thing? Or, is, or are the technologies just really that different? Uh, there are uh, a couple of fuel cell technologies that are being considered. The ones to run cars are based on actually a polymer, uh, similar to the battery that I'm showing you, except that it works in the presence of moist air. Water turns out to be an important part of these fuel cells. Uh, fuel cells were invented only three years after the battery in 1839, and they haven't yet seen the market uh, because it's, it's actually a much more complex system than the battery, and the components have just not been brought together in a cost-effective way. Uh, one of the things that we all love is energy, but we also love that energy to be cheap. Fuel cells are very expensive right now. Uh, when we buy batteries at the store, these we now have lithium batteries at the store. They're still sure. around, though, right? I mean, Correct. Uh, do we uh, use the same technology that you're using, or is, or is yours just the next iteration of that? Um, so the materials we use in our batteries are different from the ones you buy, from the lithium batteries you buy uh, in, the, in the market. For the, for the most part, you, you don't buy rechargeable batteries. The lithium batteries that you buy are just one use uh, for, ba for cameras and stuff. The rechargeable batteries usually would come in a pack for you. Someone would package it and then sell you the whole thing for either your cell phone or your, or your laptop. And for a lot more money, too. <laughs> right. And so these, were, these batteries would be in those packs instead of the uh, round batteries oh, that are there I right see. now. Uh, where do you see this application going in the near term? In the near term... We, would, we are aiming for electronic applications because uh, we are a, a startup company and uh, we need to validate our technology before the car companies would, would take us seriously. Mm -hmm. And so right now we are, we are, we are talking to various uh, electronics manufacturers and, and trying to meet their needs. Um, and, and then that would be the first step. I see it's flexible. Right. And I know I've heard of these things where, where people would be wearing jackets or things with electronic sensors and so on and so forth. Is that something? Can you talk about that application? Um, or have those, you thought are, about it? those applications would actually be relatively easy for our company, but those markets don't exist. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, you learn about the cruelty of the market. Uh, when you start trying to take a product out. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, was, there a, was there a breakthrough here? There had to have been something that was the hardest that you had to uh, get um, over. Right. So the, the main breakthrough was how do you make a solid conduct ions? Uh, in most cases, you think of... I mean, the thing that conducts ions are electrolytes. Okay, I mean, Gatorade is an electrolyte. I mean, all electrolytes that you imagine are liquids. And in the case of lithium-ion battery, in fact, it's a flammable liquid, and that's the problem. Um, so engineering a solid that could conduct ions was some sort of a breakthrough. Uh, we, needed, uh, we, we needed to conduct better. 
So in some sense, we are a, a breakthrough short right now. You're like a symphony conductor. You need to conduct a little better. Th thank you very much. Uh, it's fascinating because we all use batteries. We use batteries every day. Uh, um, I couldn't get along without batteries. Uh, I want your next battery. Thank you. Very <laughs> thank you. Uh, Kathy Yellick, thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm. I told you as we started... Um, I have a green computer. Kathy is going to talk to us about green computing and green computers. Um, my green computer was painted that way by me uh, one Friday evening because I had nothing better to do. Uh, your green computers are different. Yes, our, our green computers are green because we're trying to build computers that are very energy efficient. And um, we use a lot of computers at Berkeley Lab. Um, in fact, all, all of the science activities that you hear about are, um, many of them involve some type of computing. So just to give you some idea of that, um, we use computers at Berkeley Lab and also in, in other laboratories for um, solving problems that are either too big to experiment with. So there's an example of a picture there of black holes, so something that's very large and you can't just run experiments on black holes. Um, something that is uh, too small to be able to see um, some of the proteins and diseases. Sometimes you can, you can see them, but sometimes you can't. Um, things that are too fast or too slow or too expensive um, to, to try to do an experimental uh, facility. So one example would be designing airplanes. So when you design an airplane, um, it used to be that you would design one and kind of experiment with it and see whether it worked well. It's, it's, um, in fact, what they used to do is take airplanes and they would fold the wings up. Um, and so they touched, and then they would t to determine whether or not the wings were going to fall off in such a high-stress situation. Well, that's a very expensive experiment because you normally don't use the airplane after you've done that with it. So um, now they, they instead use a lot of computers to design airplanes so that you don't have to throw the first one away. Simulations. You do simulations with the computers. And it's very energy-intensive, I understand. That's right. And, um, so we use in computers also to try to solve some of the energy problems, such as designing energy-efficient combustion engines, but it's also true that the computers themselves consume a lot of energy. And um, so a, a, uh, something that may, maybe those of you who are in the audience may not be familiar with trying to do computer simulations for problems like this, but um, you probably are very familiar with trying to do a Google search. And behind that Google search is a large data center um, that may consume 40 to 100 megawatts of power in order to run the computers in that facility, um, often uh, built right next to a hydroelectric plant so that you can um, get, get a lot of power very easily. And that, that consumes um, a tremendous amount of energy behind all of the searches that people are doing. And the labs, the kind of computers that we use also consume a lot of energy to solve some of the very large um, computing problems that we have. And makes a lot of heat, too, I understand. That's right. There's a lot of heat that's um, dissipated out of the computers. If you go into a, um, a computer room, of course, you have um, they're, they're, they tend to be very cold because there's a lot of air conditioning used. And one of the things that um, we're trying to do is to make those computers more efficient so they don't dissipate as much heat. How, how do you do that? How do you make a computer more efficient? Gosh, my computer at home's got all these little itty bitty parts. How do you make it even smaller or better or faster? Right. Well, you know, I think that, um, that one of the problems that we've had um, in the, the way that we build computers today is that they weren't designed for energy efficiency. Um, even something like your laptop, so there's a, there's a Macintosh laptop, and I have one of those um, that I use. If you put that on your lap, it gets very hot. I, you know, I think calling these things laptop is a little bit of a misnomer at this point because um, they generate a lot of heat. And, um, and that's because there's a lot of heat being wasted in the process of running the computers. And that's happened for various um, technology reasons that the, um, that the, the uh, um, 
the process that, the, that's used to design the chips, um, we've, we've tried to make them smaller and smaller, but in order to try to do that and run the, and run the uh, to keep up with Moore's law, we're trying to run the clock speeds faster and faster, and when you do that, that takes, um, uh, that takes more energy um, to run the computers, and, um, and more of the energy is actually wasted as you make those, as you make those very small and um, very fast. So, so there's more energy that's being wasted in computers, and we're trying to um, understand how to design computer systems and are designing them uh, computers that are more energy efficient. Now, most of you also have a very energy efficient computer, um, and that's your cell phone. So your cell phone has actually a very powerful computer in it today. Um, and the, the difference between um, the kind of computer that's in a cell phone and the kind of computer that's in a, um, in a data center, let me see if I can show you a picture of this. Um, there's, the, there's a picture of the a processor um, that might be inside of a, a data center computer. Um, and that little tiny green thing up in the corner is a processor that might be inside of your cell phone. Um, so you can see visually there's a big difference in the size of those computer chips, those processor cores that are in, inside of those two things. Um, but the other big difference is that the cell phone was designed up front with the idea that we really cared about energy efficiency, whereas the server process, the things that we put in the Google data centers or the Berkeley Lab data centers, are um, not designed for energy efficiency because we're plugging them into the wall. So historically we said, well, we don't worry that much about the energy that's consumed in a computer computer that's being plugged into the wall, um, if you're going to carry it around with you, we worry a lot about the energy efficiency. And this has now changed because everybody, Google, Berkeley Lab, everybody who has a computing center or data center is very concerned about the amount of energy because it's been going up. And so the question is, can we take the kinds of processors that the clever engineers who designed cell phones have built and use that kind of a design to build, um, to build supercomputers? And what have you been able to do here at the lab? What have you learned that lets you see into that solution. Well, we have um, we have learned that there is that there's much less energy that's being consumed in those cell phone processors, and that um, we've actually taken something very close to that cell phone processor design um, developed by a company called Tensilica, and built a variation on that chip that we actually have run um, a climate simulation, uh, a piece of climate simulation on top of that processor. So, although the the idea that you build a supercomputer out of iPod processors or cell phone processors may seem kind of crazy, um, we actually think that you can map them. You wouldn't build the processor exactly the same way, but you can use the same engineering ideas behind um, that are behind cell phone and iPod processors um, to build a processor that you can use for um, physics simulations of various kinds. We've all read about these supercomputers that have basically linked up lots of little computers. Is that the idea? Yeah, so let me give you an example of a problem that we um, try to solve with um, supercomputers, and that is this um, the climate modeling problem. So in some sense, everything we know about climate change, which you've all heard a lot about over the last year or two, um, has come from supercomputers, because um, uh, before we had supercomputers that predicted climate change, change using simulations, um, we could look at the weather reports, and we could say, well, it seems warmer this year than it was last year, but there was a lot of debate um, about whether or not it was actually climate change, and there were various theories about you know, what was causing it. This is just a cyclic behavior or whatever, um, but people built computer models that describe what's happening with the global climate change. They run those computer simulations forward for 100 or 200 years, and they can actually um, predict what's happening with the, with the climate, and that's all done on supercomputers because those are very large and complex um, simulations. Just to give you um, an example of something that is also shows, shows one of the results of the computer simulations. Um, we've studied these, these kinds of um, climate 
climate problems, and you might ask, well, if you just simulate forward 100 years from now, how do you know that you're simulating anything that's real at all? And so one of the things that's been done, a, a project at, um, at, at running on computers at Berkeley Lab is a project that was um, reproducing the, the um, data back 100 years. So this is looking at data that started about 100 years ago. And on the left-hand side here, you can see all these little red dots on this, this map of North America. Um, and those little red dots are the actual um, weather measurements that are still recorded. So this data is very precious because you can't go back in time and re reproduce the, the climate data. But, but there is a little bit of that data that was, was saved probably in newspaper offices and things like that about the temperature and the humidity that day. So that data was taken and then it was smoothed out to, to, to fill in all of the missing pieces of the data. Um, and then the simulation is run forward to, to see whether or not we see the kinds of effects that we know happened historically. So if you watch this movie here, It'll show a hurricane that happened in 1938. Um, and on the left-hand side, you're seeing the, the simulation of that, um, that hurricane based on that weather data. And um, there's the actual hurricane over there. So you can see that the, the climate model actually reproduced um, this, this hurricane event. Hmm. Um, but in terms of your, I guess your question was about um, doing this in parallel. So um, these supercomputers, how do, we, how do we build these kind of supercomputers? So this is a picture um, there on the left side of a supercomputer um, that we have at, at NERSC, which is a, uh, the, the Scientific Computing Center at Berkeley Lab. Um, this is a, a machine built by Cray, uh, one of the supercomputing companies. And um, you can't, this is one of the rows of the Cray machine, and you can see that it, it goes down a ways. Each one of those cabinets is filled with a lot of uh, processors, and there are many rows of that, so there's about 100 racks um, in that computer. And um, there's 38,000 processor cores. So um, if you were to go out and buy a laptop, you might buy a dual-core processor or a quad-core processor that's got two or four processors in it. This has 38,000 processors in it for solving these kinds of scientific problems. So how do you do that? Well, for something like climate change, you take a you take the globe um, and you divide it up into roughly 38,000 pieces, um, and each one of those uh, pieces of the globe goes on one of those processors, and it simulates what's happening in that part of the globe. But as you can imagine, the weather is not independent on each of those 38,000 pieces. So those processors have to communicate with one another, and so this is a large, complex parallel machine that's put together with a high-speed network to connect the processors together. Thank you very much. Uh, our world is all about computers these days, and, and uh, thank Thank you very much for explaining that. The uh, concept of uh, global warming um, it, it leads me right into our, our next uh, uh, speaker, who uh, knows a little bit about global warming and cooling roofs. Uh, turns out that um, Hashem uh, Akbari and I spoke a moment ago, and uh, he told me that the temperature of your roof uh, can help influence the temperature of the globe. Um, I don't understand quite what you mean. Oh, it is, it is fairly simple. Uh, basically, the radiation of the sun that it is incident on the surface, if it is absorbed by the surface, is being trapped as a heat and helps the, uh, to heat the globe. If it is being reflected, it reflects back to the space and it keeps the globe cooler. Oh. As an example, just to have a rough idea, for every thousand square feet of roof area, that you turn from a dark color into white color, it is equivalent to not emitting 10 tons of CO2. So 10 tons? 10 tons of CO2. It's one-time effect. It's not per year. 
And so for a typical house in the United States, around 2,000 square feet of roof area, if you turn your roof white, you are uh, offsetting about 20 tons of CO2. And of course, if you do not want to go white, if you want to go to light color or cool colored materials, that if I have the opportunity to talk about it, then, uh, uh, then you would be able to uh, be as half effective as possible. Sure. Our, our roofs are all dark, or at least a lot of them are, it seems like. Is that contributing to global heating? It does. It does contribute to your air conditioning bills. A dark a house with a dark roof has, take my word, has about 100 to $200 uh, more per year on air conditioning bill. It helps, it, it helps the, or it worsens the air quality problem in the city. It creates urban heat islands. It has the, uh, it deteriorates uh, uh, comfort. And now it also, you're finding out that the dark roofs around the world are probably uh, causing about one year of global warming. So well, what color should we turn our roofs? Uh, should we all just go out and paint our roofs white? Uh, no, no. Uh, historically, uh, people in uh, very hot climates that they didn't have air conditioning, they had to survive in those kind of conditions, such as Mediterranean, Middle East. How they did that, they basically whitewashed their buildings, and then during the night, they were able to, through the mass of the building, to keep their building cooler, and during the day, making sure that they reflect most of the incoming radiation. For a typical American, the best thing to do is that if your house needs air conditioning uh, during the summer, and you also are worried about the increased potential heating during the winter, don't worry if you turn your roof into white or lighter color, on the net you would save money. If you do not need air conditioning, don't worry about having a, uh, having a white roof. If you are thinking about putting air conditioning, first consider putting a white roof and then an air conditioner. And my, the, my neighbors are going to look at this roof and they're going to say, holy gads. <laughs> I actually uh, beg to differ with you on that one. There are, uh, if you go to uh, uh, Bermuda, you would see the entire island has white roof. And we go there, vacation there, and I haven't seen anybody ever complaining about the white roof there. Or we go to Greece. You would find out that most islands there are all whitewashed every year or so. Nobody is complaining, and there is no air conditioning in those buildings. Should we change building codes then? What, what does your research suggest? Indeed, I, we, are, we are doing that. In California right now, every uh, commercial building that it is being built, it is prescriptively required to have uh, a white roof. And uh, as of August of this year, all buildings in the hot climate regions in, in California, all residential buildings in hot climate regions, are required to have cool colored roof. Cool colored materials are the materials that are identical in, in color, but they are stay a lot cooler during the sun, because under the sun because they reflect the invisible part of the sun's light. So the roof could look dark but actually be light. That is exactly the case and uh, here is an example of such material that this particular house is a test house in Sacramento that we have tested. It does have cool colored brown uh, so it is a reality in the market 
and it reflects the invisible part of the solar spectrum. So in a way, if you are uh, a smart engineer, you can design a jet black surface with a reflectivity of 50%. Uh, and here are some materials that are right now in the market. These are two blacks, a standard black with a reflectivity of 4%, cool black with a reflectivity of 40%. So if you put this thing under hot, uh, sunny August day, you would find out that this cool black is about 35 degrees cooler than the hot black. We have uh, materials right now in tiles, metals, and shingles that are available in the market. The idea then is if we can re-roof America, uh, we can help reduce global warming and reduce the demand for electricity and, and, and power use, correct? Exactly. I actually, about all the uh, techniques that right now is being proposed to immediately combat global warming, in our humble opinion, cool roof is the only technology that offers you energy savings, it offers you comfort and better air quality, and cools the world while putting money in your pocket. And uh, it, it is not solving all the problems of the global warming, but it buys you precious time in order to put uh, our act together and try to uh, curb our CO2 emissions. Does Stephen Chu know this? You know he's the new energy secretary? Uh, not he only know he this? knows that, but he's a, he's a converter. He, gener he believes that, and in a recent meeting I've been told that he had raised that this, uh, this issue that some of these th simple technologies, United States should lead the effort in order to make it happen. Uh, uh, within, the, uh, within the weekend, uh, uh, me and my colleague, uh, uh, Professor Rosenfeld, who is right now a commissioner at the California Energy Commission, we're working on a plan uh, to the State Department to uh, find out, uh, to, to, to develop a proposal of how uh, for the United States uh, lead the world in order to create the first hundred cool cities in the world. How much energy, how much heat, I guess, how much heat uh, do we come, do we get from these, uh, you call them heat islands in, in our cities? Uh, how much heat is produced there? Oh, it is, it is a, a very, very small amount. Uh, remember that when we are talking about the global warming, we are t thinking about three to five degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Now, the cool roof contribution is about one hundredths of that amount. But remember that one hundredths of that amount, that's such a small amount, is sufficient to delay global warming by one and a half year. So it is, in terms of the contribution to global warming is small, as is everything else, this light bulb, uh, a single car, everything has a very small contribution, but collectively, world is emitting about 30, uh, 25 to 30 uh, gigaton of CO2 per year. And cool cities have the potential of, uh, of uh, reducing these emissions in the equivalent term by 44 gigaton. Is, would it be expensive to do that to our houses? No, absolutely not. The, the many material comes in in different colors. As an example, if you are buying shingles, your friendly contractor comes to your house with an assortment of colored shingles to say which one you want. And uh, if you happen to select a white shingle versus a dark shingle, 
Uh, there you go immediately by saving the globe and also reducing your air conditioning bill. And uh, if you re really want to uh, uh, do a good job is that at the time that comes for the next roof change or, uh, or major repair on the roof, uh, think about, uh, think about uh, that the white or a cool roof uh, can be used and uh, it lowers your AC bill and improves your indoor comfort, lowers outdoor ambient temperature during the summer and improves smog and uh, uh, also cools the globe and delays global warming. And 1,000 square feet of roof area is equal to 10 tons of less CO2 emissions. Thank you. Um, the Akbari Construction Company will be taking bids right after. No. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, t today, something very interesting happened. Uh, as you probably heard, the uh, space shuttle took off and is going to the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, telescopes uh, are the only time machines that we've been able to perfect so far, because as you know, when you look back in space, you go far enough away, you're looking back in time, because it takes time for the light to get here. But there's another time machine. Carl Haber has it. Uh, he was able to bring voices back from the past, from shattered things. Uh, he was able to resurrect a song, I believe, even. Um, Carl, tell us about it. Okay. So I guess everybody knows that Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. That was in 1877. Here's a picture of Thomas Edison, and that's a reproduction of his original tin foil phonograph. So sound is a, is a vibration that matter assumes and can be transferred from one place to another. And uh, what Edison did is he took sound and he embossed it on tinfoil and he figured out a way to do this reversibly so he could both record and reproduce the sound and apparently the first thing he ever recorded was Mary Had a Little Lamb. So um, everybody's learned about this in school. It turns out that a good sort of 20 years before Edison did his work, uh, there was a man named Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville working in France who built a very similar machine but it was a sound recorder, but it had no way to play the sound back. Because instead of embossing it on foil, as Edison did, he essentially wrote it onto paper. Okay? And it, it sounds funny to build a recorder with no way to play back, but um, his vision was, uh, was that this was going to be a, a kind of stenography, and people were going to learn to read these traces. Like, like music. Sort of like music, yeah. And um, his medium was, was, was soot-coated paper. And you can see here, this, there was a diaphragm that vibrated. And as the paper, which was on a cylinder, rotated um, and the diaphragm vibrated, it moved a pig's bristle. And it, it scratched these waveforms into the, into the paper. If you're familiar with the oscilloscope, this is a mechanical version of the oscilloscope. So um, around you can't, you can't hear what he did. He couldn't hear it, right. Yeah. I mean, he heard it when it was recorded. Right. <laughs> so in, in, around 1860, when he did sort of his sort of best experiments, he took these original tracings and he deposited them at the French Academy of Sciences in Paris. And they just stayed there. And we got access to these 
original tracings last year. And it turned out that we were working on um, a kind of technology for restoring sound recordings of all sorts, and uh, we were able to apply it very rapidly to these sheets of paper and uh, restore the sound that, that was recorded and actually hear it for the first time. Can, can we hear it? Sure. Okay. So um, Edison chose Mary Had a Little Lamb, and um, Leon Scott chose Eau Claire de la Lune. Now, you may be familiar with that song. I find that some people are and some people aren't. So we're going to play first the kindergarten class from Black Pine Circle School singing Eau Claire de la Lune, just so you remember what it sounds like. Then there'll be a few second pause, and you'll hear what we believe was Scott's 15-year-old daughter singing just 10 seconds of that song. There'll be another pause, and then you'll hear her sing it again, so you can sort of catch it. Okay, so if we can have the first clip, please. Ago, how long ago was 1860? That? that was 1860. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first sound recording that the earliest known sound recording. Wow, <laughs> um, what else can you do? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what we have here. Ah, okay, so so that's that's very nice, but um, as far as the history of sound goes, recorded sound that's really just the tip of the iceberg. So Scott did his work in 1860, Edison did his work in 1877. In the years that, that ensued, people like Alexander Graham Bell and others improved the technology. And then if we sort of look at, say, the first 60 or 70 years of the 20th century, um, there was a massive amount of sound recording that went on that covers the inventions themselves, ethnography. This is a picture of Ishii, who was a Native American uh, man who came, it's a long story, but came to be recorded extensively by Professor Alfred Krober at Cal. Um, there's the whole history of recorded music, commercial recorded music. There's the roots of our musical traditions. This is Lead Belly. There's the development of technology that's Les Paul. And there's presidential sound recording. So there's millions of things that have been recorded on a whole range of materials that now are archaic. So, you know, we, we're used to thinking of sound now almost completely as a digital medium, but throughout most of the 20th century, it was recorded on a variety of mechanical formats, plastics, glass, foil, wax, and all sorts of materials that are decaying, breaking down, not being cared for properly. So there's a tremendous audio heritage which is at risk, and the goal of the research that we've been doing at the lab that gave us this, of course, this sort of spectacular Leon Scott thing, is really aimed at looking at this broad audio heritage and trying to help libraries and museums, archives, to stabilize, preserve, and create digital access now to these 
archaic analog formats. Uh, you, you can also go back in time. I'm thinking now of that uh, uh, motorcade uh, recording from the radio at the uh, Kennedy assassination. See where there, there's more than one gunshot. I'm, that's where I, what can you find out from that? So, um, so, so the <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay, the, the the sort of the the um, the centerpiece of what we're doing with this research um, is to use optical technologies to um, remove information from these recordings without touching them. Okay. So a magnetic strip wouldn't work. No, it's so so. Ben, essentially, all these things I've shown here, and the and the materials that dominate sound recordings through the early, sorry, the first half of the 20th century and the latter years of the 19th century, are materials that have grooves cut in them. Okay, so you remember the phonograph record is you know a perfect example of the grooved carriers. Okay, and if a grooved carrier is is um, compromised or broken. By approaching it with optical methods, without having to physically touch it, um, we have an ability to, to try and get the information off. So a broken record, you can fix. Yeah, we can fix a broken Now, you ask about the Kennedy assassination. Um, that's an interesting story. Uh, that was actually recorded um, on what was called a dictabelt, which is, was a plastic strip that um, was used for office dictation and insurance testimony and things like that. Um, and the police department would use those, those things to, um, to log all the radio traffic. And the, in fact, the Dallas Police Department used one of those belts and at the time of the Kennedy assassination. And it did record the, the radio traffic. And it's a controversy to this day whether there was actually gunshots heard on it or not. That particular dicta belt is broken, um, but in principle could be played again uh, with, with such a technology. Huh. I'm uh, not saying that you would solve the Kennedy assassination, yes. and it's controversial, but you asked about that material. Yeah. I'm a journalist. I've got to get the scoop. Yeah. Um, what, what else? What, what, where do you see this going? I mean, it, it, not just with sound recording. You can do other things with this same well, technology. Well, okay, so, so I mean, th this is, um, of course, it's, it's I, I like to argue that, that, you know, in and of itself, being able to to uh, help preserve and, and restore and create access to sound recordings is, is a worthy undertaking. For us, um, we came to this in a very odd way, and I think that's also an interesting story, um, because it's really an offshoot of research that's going on at the lab for completely different purposes, which I can say sure, something please, about. Sure, please, yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna change, I'll change directions uh, quite dramatically. This uh, is an aerial view of um, the Large Hadron Collider, which is the, the largest particle collider in the world that's currently under repair in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, and the scale of this is sort of 10 kilometers, okay? So it's huge. And um, if you go zoom in a little bit closer to say the one kilometer scale, um, there's a tunnel that's 100 meters underground with large chambers located every so forth. Um, and in that chamber are on the 100-meter scale are these huge arrays of equipment, um, pieces of which were built here at Berkeley Lab. And this is a one such array kind of on the one-meter scale. And here's a little piece of it. There are thousands of these little objects, which are like cameras, um, that are sort of the size of your hand. And to build these things, we had to line up all the components on the scale of microns. So a micron is a billionth of a kilometer. So we're going from there to there, and it's a very big scale. So 
In order to do this, we had to learn how to measure things very accurately and a lot of times, over and over again, thousands and thousands of points. So once we kind of appreciated this um, and we learned how to do this, just kind of serendipitously we heard about this whole story of sound recordings and the audio heritage at risk, and we had a kind of, you know, oh boy moment where we thought, well, if you can measure these things so well, why not, you know, try and actually measure in detail the surfaces of phonograph records? Because um, the scales were very similar. And that kind of was a, was a sort of taking off point for us. And we started to study this problem. And, it, and it actually, the more we looked at it, the more tractable it seemed. We, we, we kind of tested it out. And we got a lot of in, sort of encouragement from the Library of Congress and the other public stewards of, of cultural material. I was going to say that's, that's how big science can uh, make culture come back alive. Yeah. That's so we really feel like we, you know, we took sort of what we had learned in our kind of mission to study fundamental physics and find a way to apply it in, a, in, a, you know, in another problem, which, is, which was quite interesting. And here's the kind of some pictures that indicate you know, what the optical measurements of these surfaces can give you very detailed pictures on the sort of sub-millimeter scale of what's going on on the surface. And then I think I have a couple of other examples I can play for people, okay? Okay, yeah. more sound? Yeah, more sound. So, so this, this next example um, is, a, is a piece called The Holy City, uh, and it was composed by Stephen Adams and performed sometime in the very early 20th century. Um, this was a manufactured cylinder. So we're going to, don't play it yet, but you're going to play it. First you're going to hear it played with a needle by a sort of modern version of the, of the phonograph. And then you're going to hear it played through these optical methods. Um, then there's going to be a pause. There'll be a pause between those two. And then there'll be another pause, and you're going to hear a broken record. So here's a record that actually somebody took a piece out of. Um, but we were able to scan these uh, optically and just put it back together, and you'll hear that too. That's a 1930 recording from, from the overture to Ireland. Cool. Let's hear it. So let's hear it. So now you'll hear the optical version. And now ILM. brings a whole new meaning to the term superconductor, super collider, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess. So, we're, I mean, what we'd like to do with this, um, and, and really our partnership with the Library of Congress is what made this, you know, kind of turn into something which we really can see maybe coming into use, is really to create a tool with these optical scanning methods, which will be of general value to the libraries, museums, and archives that, that 
care for these collections. Perfect. Thank you very much. Please, a round of applause for all of our participants. Thank you so much. Now, I'd like to throw it open to questions. Uh, anyone have a question? Please step up to the microphone and make yourself heard. I've been told this is Berkeley. People will speak out, so I'm ready to listen. Um, just a really quick question for about the first, the phyllo chip. Um, I'm just wondering how much this costs and how, you know, is this going to be something that will really drastically change the affordability, not just the speed of experiments? Well, it's a good question. Uh, right now, these disposable cartridges run about $250 per test because we only make them in batches of hundreds. But um, the manufacturers who can scale these things up see it down in the price of $10 per test in the future. So we don't see that as a big barrier. All right, this is for uh, Hashem Akbari. Did I get it right? You did it right. Okay. Um, well, um, that was pretty uh, cool what you said about global warming. And um, I, back in school, I actually uh, learned a little bit about it, too, with one of my professors. And, um, you know, what I noticed among scientists who were speaking out about global warming, the only thing they really talk about is CO2 um, and cutting back on it, and, and nothing is ever said about like absorbing the CO2 back into the earth, like plants do, sort of, or like um, the other factors that affect global warming. And I, I just feel that not enough people are getting informed about that. Is and well, N Nashem, you're a nuclear engineer. Perhaps you know something about atmospheric physics. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Sure. Uh, I think that there, are, there is a whole school of scientists uh, addressing all aspects of global warming, adaptation, and mitigation. It is not as if that nobody is doing much about those. Uh, we are getting really serious about addressing the, the problem of global warming within the last uh, 20 years. And of course, during the last 20 years, uh, we, uh, we have been the queen of denial. You know, uh, our administrations have not really taught that global warming is a major issue. Now that we are uh, hopefully in the right directions, many of these uh, technologies are going to be evaluated, and uh, we do not have much time for implementation. And one of the reasons that we are proposing some of these technologies, such as cool roofs or reduction of the soot in the atmosphere, these are uh, global warming 101. Uh, that you, this is something that you can do immediately by yourself time, knowing that you are not solving problem of global warming while you are having your uh, eyes on the bigger problem of first how to uh, come to a net zero emission economy throughout the world. That means no additional CO2 back into the atmosphere. That would mean a whole uh, series of uh, different measures and renewables that uh, on the net we do not add any greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And secondly, uh, there is a, uh, some analysis have shown that still some of those CO2 that we have emitted within the last 100 years have to be brought back to, to the Earth. And there are quite few technologies and some leading scientists who are thinking about it. Uh, 
Thank, thank you very much. Uh, another question? All right, Mr. DeSantis, I have a few questions about the phyllo chip. How d what does it take in terms of a sample as in how large, how easy to how easy to acquire and scan? Is it internally powered or externally powered? And how how does it display its out whatever it whatever it discovers? Well, thanks for raising that point. Uh, it take a little bit of time to explain the whole process, but basically you could take a small sample. For instance, we collect dust in the air onto a filter, and then take the DNA out of that dust, and we can apply it to the array, and there's enough DNA just in that dust, which you couldn't see uh, with the microscope or with the naked eye, obviously, and it'll still detect it. And what, it's not internally powered. What happens is after the DNA um, sticks to the proper tests of the millions of tests on there, we can see it with a fluorescence laser. So a laser excites the surface, and then where fluorescence occurs, where, where light is emitted, we know that test was positive. So you know, it takes a reader, so it slides into a reader at various sizes, but right now that reader is about the size of a personal computer. Uh, Ms. Yellick, uh, I've been wondering how you share your development information with industry or uh, when and if you develop these things. Do you license them to uh, IBM and Cray, or how, what's the arrangement? So um, right now we're in a in basic research phase for this um, this process. We are working with uh, the company I mentioned before, Tensilica, on developing this these greener greener computers. Um, we're talking with um, Cray and IBM about them quite a bit, Intel and others as well. Um, and I think at at some point um, we are um, John Shelf, who actually leads that. That green flash project is um, what it's called. Is um, ha has filed a patent, and so um, we would then uh, be able to license it to the other to, to uh, you know any of these companies. So that that is the plan. We've been talking with them about it though from the very beginning, and I think there is a, um, there's a lot of interest, especially on the data center side. Companies like um, Cray and IBM, but uh, even in Intel that sell a lot to companies like Amazon and Google. So yeah, that, that's that's the plan is to is to Produce, you know, get, put it out there for other people to use. Well, first, as a, as a resident of Berkeley, I just want to thank you all for explaining what's going on up there. It's nice to know um, what's happening, you know, when we look up there, and it's something we can be proud of, so it's really nice. I had two questions for Hashem Akbari. Um, really very interested in the idea of the, the white roofs. Uh, the first question is, um, as I've thought about roofs and roof technology, it seemed that the next innovation would always be about solar roofs, that eventually solar panels would become roof shingles and the houses would power themselves and actually we'd harness that electricity. This seems to be a very different direction, so I'm curious if you could talk about that. And then the second question along the same lines is, um, or just about your, your roof, has the Claremont Hotel come out and sort of offered evidence and support of your, uh, your research as a, as a huge, the biggest building around with a white roof? Yeah. Yeah. PV are being installed on roofs. The current uh, value of, or the price of the electricity generated by photovoltaics in today's prices is about 50 cents a kilowatt hour. And uh, it would be time until we get to the uh, level that that prices would be reasonably low. Uh, a cool roof for most application uh, doesn't cost anything more. It may last actually longer and on the life cycle cost 
it would uh, provide you comfort and puts money in your pocket. Having said all of that, uh, this, these are not the question of either or or. The question is both. We are going to use PV wherever we can and wherever else that we have for our comfort, we would use other cheap technologies or low expensive technologies such as cool roof. And uh, in regard to your f second question, uh, I already forgot it. Can you Claremont. repeat it? Oh, yeah, Claremont. Claremont. We, we, haven't, uh, uh, we haven't done an experiment in Claremont Hotel, but we have done many, many experiments in a lot of places in finding out in buildings that are not air-conditioned, the upper space of the building, depending on what level of insulation it has, it can be up to 20 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. That's number one. And if they are being turned from a dark into a, uh, into a white color, the amount of the energy saved per foot square of the roof area is about 20%. So if you have a 10-story building or a single-story building with the same roof area, the amount of energy that it is saved, the absolute amount is the same. Hmm. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say about the, um, the expense of solar energy. It turns out that hydroelectric, uh, 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 that, uh, hydroelectric plants, nuclear, coal, natural gas, and oil, use 186 billion gallons of water daily in the production of electricity. Solar panels use no water in the production of clean, renewable electricity. If you factor in the water, solar is the cheapest form of energy. They don't factor in the use of water. Um, but secondly, to uh, Nitash, um, on, the, on the batteries, um, I noticed that they're flat and lightweight. Solar panels, how about putting your battery inside, underneath the solar panels? They hardly take any room, and you can have a solar solar panel that is also a battery. It sounds like your technology can blend with photovoltaics, can produce a solar-powered battery uh, solar panel. Sign them up. <laughs> You're exactly right. Uh, we, we, we are talking to people who make solar uh, panels, uh, applied materials. Uh, how to integrate uh, batteries into solar panels is something we are actively pursuing. Thank you. Yes, sir. I also have a question about the batteries. Um, the the weight compared to an equal battery of, I don't know, I guess the same amount of power or I'm not exactly sure how you yeah. measure it, but the weight compared to a normal battery, how does it measure up? Um, so the, the current, the most, uh, the, the most, the highest energy density battery you can buy today uh, will give you 200 watt hours per kilogram. And what we are aiming for is in the vicinity of 300 watt hours per kilogram. So there's a one third, you know, a 50% increase in the amount of energy per unit weight. Sound like you've leapfrogged that 50 year timeline. <laughs> <laughs> On paper. <laughs> it takes 50 years to get there. Yes, ma'am. Hi, uh, for Hashem. Yes. I'm wondering, do you have a website? or something that we Berkeley residents could refer to. This information is really, really good that you have given us because we were all told we were going to have to make white roofs and people on the hills don't want to be having to look down on white roofs and the glare. And We don't have air conditioning. Most people in Berkeley don't have air conditioning. So 
website. <laughs> oh, oh, here we are. Oh. Heatisland.lbl.gov. That's one. You can also Google the word heat island. Probably the first ten sites would refer back to LBNL. There is also another site that you might want to look. It's called coolcolors.lbl.gov. Just to anecdotal comment that you made about the glare, uh, many of the lighter color roofs, we are not thinking about making them uh, like a mirror. They are uh, having a reflectivity of about 55% when they are aged. They look definitely light, but they are diffused light, and they do not have much of a glare. Okay, thank you so much. This is definitely news you can use right here at home. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Am I speaking into the microphone? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. This is a question from Mr. De, uh, DeSantis about the phyllo chip. I'm just wondering, with the desperate need in America for food safety control, whether this is in any condition to be used by the FDA, check the factories, we would have eliminated the salmonella problem, check the fields, eliminate the E. coli problem. Is it also... Is that a shovel-ready project? It is adaptable at this stage. We've got <laughs> stimulus money for you. <laughs> and is there, is there a chance that there, at some point there would be one for $10? You, I could take one to the grocery store and check that bag of spinach. On the other hand, how would I read those heat waves? Great Thank questions. You. Well, to address the first question, yes, um, we work with the USDA right now. Um, one of the problems with uh, slaughterhouses, for instance, is that there's uh, E. coli from the feces that mix in with the hamburger. And uh, that's a problem, obviously. So they're finding ways to, to take soil samples and meat samples and um, find out what the profile of bacteria that's going into our food supply. Uh, also, vegetable farmers can use it as well. There's, as we know, there's been some um, bacteria that's normally only found in, in your enteric system that's getting onto the vegetables. So uh, there's, a, there's research level quality control is happening, but not production level quality control. So if we can prove at the research level that it's, a, it's an effective and easy way to, to scan the food supply, then we hope to move into uh, large units. Now, the $10, the $10 chip uh, we think is probably a few years away. Um, and of course, as uh, scanners become smaller, as you know, you have a laser inside your CD player right now that, or your DVD player that can scan. So the types of lasers that are used to scan this uh, device are, have been getting smaller over the last five years. So we believe it should be something that you could at least have in your doctor's office really easily. Maybe not be able to carry in your backpack for a few more years after that. But I don't know enough about the uh, optics to know if, the, if, if things are getting smaller fast enough. I have a question for Dr. Akbari. Uh, two questions, really. One is practical and one is theoretical. Uh, the practical one is what would be your recommendation for people who live in cool or cold climates? for their roofing? Sure. Uh, here is a rule of thumb. Uh, if you have n demand for both air conditioning and heating, it pays off wherever you are in the United States or in the world. It pays off, and financially, you would be better off to have a cool roof or a white roof. If you have no demand for cooling, but you have heating, and your house is comfortable, you are not worried about the issue of the global warming, you don't have to install a white or a cool roof. It is a simple rule of thumb. 
So in the northern climates, you would recommend darker roofs? Uh, you, can, you can use darker roof, but it's not going to help you much. Remember that the heating, most of the heating in residences happen either early in the morning or late in the afternoon. At that time, there is no sun. During the winter, the sky is about typically four times cloudier. That means there is no sun. Uh, days are half as short as summer. That means less sun. Sun angle is lower. Uh, that is, walls are becoming a lot more important than the roof. And in, as it becomes colder and colder, your roof is probably covered with the snow throughout the entire winter, and the color doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, and I also have a theoretical question. Sure. Um, it's fine to re uh, reflect sunlight from the roof, but I thought the problem was not so much that the earth is not reflecting light. I thought the problem was that once the light is reflected, it is later on redirected downward by the so-called, by the carbon dioxide and other gases. Uh, uh, that is true, but it is wavelength dependent. When the sun's energy, it is short wave. And as a result of that, the atmosphere is very transparent when it is reaching the Earth. That's the reason that we see the sun. And when the light is being reflected, it is almost as transparent as it is coming. Therefore, it would be able to escape the Earth's atmosphere. However, when it is absorbed on the Earth's surface, it becomes long wave radiation then your theory is fully applicable, and that's the reason we call them greenhouse gases. So in, in other words, the, um, the, the, the wavelengths that are reflected from a white roof would be the shorter wavelengths? That is correct. I see. Okay, thank you. My pleasure. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Yes, ma'am. I have another one. This one's for Dr. Haber. And I was just wondering, we talked about the Kennedy recording, but our um, kind of two questions. One, is there any other sort of holy grail thing that, you know, that the people at the Library of Congress or other archivists just can't wait to get put back together? And then also sort of what's the next step or challenge with this technology? What, what goes happens from here? Okay, so the first question was, um, are there any other holy grail recordings? Um, well, certainly, the, I mean, the original Leon Scott were a kind of holy ground because nobody had ever heard those before. And there are a number of other recordings from this very, very early period that have not been played. For example, um, Graham Bell and his collaborators were working in the early 1880s, and there's some 300 objects at the Smithsonian of diverse form and shape that represent the evolution of the technology in many ways that never went anywhere. And um, potentially those could be played. Um, so there's, there's actually a, a kind of loose collaboration of people around the country that call themselves First Sounds that would like to find, they have a website, firstsounds.org. And they're the ones who actually went over to France and brought the, um, brought the Scott uh, sheets, well, copies of the Scott sheets back. But um, so yes, there, there are, there's a bunch of things from that early period. Um, and then there are a number of things that you know may, again, and now it becomes a matter of taste of what, what you find interesting. Um, for example, uh, there are a bunch of recordings of Jack London that, that had never been played. And uh, uh, we actually w restored one of them, and we could hear the only recording of London. Now, if you're a London 
fan that you probably think that that was pretty interesting, but if you don't like Jack London, you probably <laughs> Did um, you bring it? Uh, no, I didn't bring it with me, but, 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 but we have it. And, and, and um, I often feature it in, when I make presentations. So there, there's, there's like lots of things like that um, all throughout the, the, those early years. And I mean, there may be some very rare recordings of which there are just a broken one, that, that, but I don't know, you know, specifically. The libraries, um, you, you, you know, you would think the library's, you know, dying to hear this or that, but really what the library is thinking about is the problem of dealing with the collection. And the reason that they kind of um, were excited by what we're doing and have supported us and have worked with us is that, is that they see optical scanning as a route towards developing a technology that will allow them to massively digitize large collections. So sort of think about like a Xerox machine, but for recordings, right? Because you have so many different formats and shapes and sizes and colors and conditions. When, when, a, when a present day recording engineer has to transfer one of those recordings, they have to figure out what kind of a machine to play it on, what kind of a needle to use, how to clean it, how to deal with it if it's broken. And that's a very labor intensive thing. So the, dollars per disk to transfer are significant issue, not to mention the time. So to the extent that we can create a kind of automated platform that deals with the variety of formats through sort of software and kind of expert systems, um, the, the hope is to really alleviate that, that, um, that impediment. Okay? So the next step. So this research uh, has been going on for some years. Uh, at the lab, and um, I didn't really have time to go into it, and if you go to irene.lbl.gov, which is our website, you can see more about what's gone, but we've sort of built two kind of workstations based on this idea. One of them which is aimed at disks, and the other one which is aimed at cylinders, and there's a version of the disk scanning machine at the Library of Congress. It's been there for two years, and it's been undergoing tests and things like that. The library has just commissioned what's called the National Audiovisual Conservation Center, which is a completely brand new state-of-the-art facility out in the Virginia horse, horse country, where they've moved their entire audiovisual collection. And this machine that's at MDC right now is going to be moved in the next month or two out to the Virginia site um, and start to become a tool that they're going to learn how to use for disc records. Um, there are other large collections that uh, people are interested in applying this to. For example, there's, there are very significant collections of early sound recordings in South Asia, which scholars want to digitize for research on early Indian languages, linguistics, and things like that. And there's been talk about maybe deploying versions of this technology there. And what you'll see in the next year also is that the cylinder scanning uh, aspect will, will also move that to Washington and and we'll start to, to work on that. So we're very much interested, as I said in the kind of last sentences, in getting this into the form of a tool that archivists can use and, and that they don't need a lot of training, that we've built into the software uh, enough controls and, and, and aspects that, that it can pretty much deal with things without the engineer having to do a lot of, of specialized uh, manipulation. Oh, another question? Yes, please, please. 
Uh, this question is for Dr. Todd DeSantis regarding the pilot chip. Um, I was wondering if uh, scientists around the world are using this pilot chip, are, are, and you have a database of the known bacteria. Would they be sent this database with the pilot chip, or is it is it stored in your lab, and they would it would be connected through a secure connection to, for comparisons? And furthermore, what if they detect a um, uh, bacteria that's not in the database? Would that automatically be uploaded? And, uh, and be impl Im implemented into the database? Good question. Yeah, our database is called greengenes.lbl.gov, and we track all known bacteria's DNA profile. Um, and from that, uh, when someone uses the chip, they get that database behind it so that the software can interpret the light signals into bacteria lists. Um, it's not really the best technology for discovering brand new bacteria. We have a complementary technology for that. But when a new bacteria is discovered, if it turns out that the DNA profile can be interpreted from the pattern of light already being exhibited, then that gets added to the library file. That's the software we use. Uh, but really, when new bacteria come out, the best thing to do is, is to add that test to the next version of the chip. And so this is our generation three chip, and there'll probably be new ones coming out each year. So just to reiterate, so the, the database is actually sent out to, uh, with the chip to the scientists, there's not like an ongoing uh, database that they can connect to in your, in your lab? Good question. Well, the way we do right now with our beta test sites is they collect the light signals and then through the internet they bounce that to our, against our database and we can produce lists of bacteria. Oh. Um, in, the, in a commercial version it would be different. They would have that all locally. Thank you. Uh, we're almost out of time. We'll take one more question if we could. You sir, go ahead. Well, as a builder, we often are asked to put uh, radiant roof barriers up, and I wonder if uh, you could comment on that. Uh, uh, also, another issue that came up in the cool roof idea, I think, is uh, what do you think about air conditioning condensers, which in most buildings, you know, they're up on the right sitting in the heat? <clears throat> radiant barrier uh, costs about, depending on when it is being applied, anywhere between 20 cents to $2 per square foot to install. A cool roof, incremental cost of a cool roof versus dark roof is zero. And uh, there is, uh, in, terms of the, in terms of the returning, you're getting your money back, the options are kind of clear in more, for most cases. And of course, uh, uh, these are parallel technologies that if you have a cool roof, a radiant barrier doesn't work as well. If you have a radiant barrier under the roof, a cool roof doesn't work as well. So the cheapest technology should be installed first. And uh, the question about the condensers of the air conditioners, uh, if it wasn't because of the cycling of the air conditioner, and the con air conditioner runs continuously, uh, the performance of it, whether it's under the sun or in the shade, uh, is going to be only less than 1% of it, uh, different. However, most of our air conditioning cycle, and that uh, having an, a condenser of an air conditioner in the sun versus in the shade can have an effect of as much as 10% on the performance of the air conditioning. I th think with that we should wrap it up. Ladies and gentlemen, from... Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, with the, uh, the beginning of bug, bugs and, and, and bacteria and goofy things like that, to better, back, to better batteries, to 
uh, greener computers, to roofs that can save the planet, to saving our culture, our audio culture. This is the sort of stuff that goes on up at, up at this laboratory at, uh, at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And one of the reasons why I go there a lot to try to talk to these people to find out what's going on is because they have such cool stuff. Um, thank you very much for coming. This has been uh, a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.